This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hi, it's Farah from the Intelligence Squared team here. I'm really excited to be speaking to you guys on a Tuesday instead of our usual Friday slot. We'll be bringing you some bonus episodes for the next few weeks. They're sampled from our new podcast strand called How I Found My Voice, presented by the BBC journalist Samira Ahmed. If you're interested in listening to more episodes from this series, just look up How I Found My Voice in your podcast app. And if you enjoy listening, please do leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. And of course, we'll be bringing you our usual episodes every Friday. I came up with uh, an idea for a Superman story when I was about six. I, I just found myself suddenly with no money whatsoever. I would have my dinner one night and the cat would have uh, food the next night. You know? My Holy Communion was a week later, you could still see Spider-Man's face across my face. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to How I Found My Voice, a podcast brought to you by Intelligence Squared. I'm Samira Ahmed. When you see a favourite artist, politician or writer, do you ever wonder what first made them step forward to draw attention to what they had to say? This podcast is all about going behind the celebrity to understand how they came to find their voice. From keeping a childhood diary to a chance encounter or going to that life-changing film or concert, each week we speak to a prominent public figure about their journey to find their voice and perhaps along the way we'll pick up some insights for ourselves. Let us know what you think online with the Intelligence Squared hashtag IQ2. This week we speak to Mark Miller, the New York Times best-selling comic writer. He worked on Marvel Comics for 10 years, on many of their most famous characters. He was a consultant on the Marvel films at Fox, including X-Men. And he created and wrote Kick-Ass and Kingsman, which spawned their own successful films. He set up Miller World, an independent media production house, and is now its president since selling it to Netflix. Mark Miller is on Twitter as at Mr. Mark Miller, and I'm there as at Samira Ahmed UK. Welcome, Mark. Hi there. Thanks for having me. You grew up in this very small Scottish town called Coatbridge near mm-hmm. Glasgow. Can you tell me what sort of child you were and what sort of childhood you had? I think I was massively indulged, and it's funny, like the west of Scotland, you know, it's pretty post-industrial, you know, like everything was kind of run down by the time I came along. People were losing their jobs more than getting jobs, and... Um, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, if you had to see a movie about that, it would probably seem kind of bleak. And yet it was fantastic. I had the most brilliant childhoods, completely surrounded by a family who, who encouraged me at every step. 
and lovely neighbours and a lovely housing scheme that we grew up in where everybody knew each other. So it's funny, there's two ways of looking at it. You know, when you look at the statistics, it looked tough. Well, can we just actually, say, it, reality, was, it was dubbed in 2007, so yeah. quite recently, the most dismal place to stay <laughs> in the whole country. I'm not sure where that's from. Is is that a description you recognise, even whilst all, saying no. you had a happy childhood? I mean, it's funny, I've, I've been all over the world, you know, and, and to me, the things that seem so dismal is... You know, maybe a, a posh neighbourhood where you don't know your next door neighbour. You can live next door to someone for 20 years, but they don't even say hello to you. You know, to me, that seems like a kind of social hell. But one of the lovely things about growing up in a, a working class community is that everybody's a little bit reliant on each other. So you get to know each other very quickly. You know, and poverty is a great leveller. You know, my, my parents had nothing. You know, my, my mum was a cleaning lady. My dad was a steel worker. But what they had was a really sort of generous spirit. And they knew everybody in the neighbourhood. Everybody knew them. And it actually just felt like a large extended family. And what kind of child were are you? I think uh, quite thoughtful, I think. You know, I was a good chameleon. I was actually a very, very good chameleon. Like, um, I could hang out with the, the wild kids, but at the same time go home and read Sherlock Holmes books. You know, I used to dress up as Sherlock Holmes and play and things like that. So I was really into Basil Rathbone movies when I was like seven or eight. And, uh, you know, I, I'd try and solve crimes and things. You know, like I remember starting a private consulting detective agency when I was seven or eight and I made business cards. Like one of my one of my neighbours, his motorbike went missing. Somebody had stolen it during the night. And I'd made a little business card that said consulting detective. And I went round to his house and I said, look, give me all the information that you have on this and I'll find it for you. <laughs> you know, so like this kind of madness. And I remember... Did you, you find it for him? No, I didn't. But they thought I was playing a game. It was funny. They, they, I said, oh, yes, uh, Inspector Miller. And I actually closed my little book that I had. I had this little notepad. And I said, look, if you're not going to take this case seriously, I'm not going to take it seriously. You know, so, so I think it was quite precocious. And, <laughs> so how old were you again? Seven, seven or eight. And what year know? would this have been? Oh, 1978, maybe, you know. So like uh, Basil Rathbone, Sherlock Holmes on TV. And I was really inspired by that as a kid. The thing that seems to have changed your life around that age was seeing... Superman, the film starring Christopher Reeve, mm. which I think came out that year. Yeah. Why that film and what were the circumstances in which you encountered it? I remember discovering Superman when I was about four or five. There was a cartoon that used to be on uh, round about, you know, the time school finished when you're having your tea. And uh, I remember Superman was on on Wednesdays, Batman was on on Mondays. And I knew these guys through the cartoons, started picking up the comics kind of based on this. And I, I had a real interest in it, a real excitement. I liked the Marvel stuff as well, you know. So I was uh, comics was emerging for me, and I kind of learned to read from reading these comics, you know. So I used to look at the pictures and guess the stories, and then eventually I, I figured out how to read them. And um, all my reading came from from reading comic books. So a Superman movie coming out that felt like an upgrade. That's how people feel when a new iPhone's out. Probably, you know, this is like this is the big one. And I remember queuing for it and being so excited, vomiting in the queue. I was like eight, mm. and my mum was saying, "Look, we're taking you home. You're not well." And I was like. I'm not. I'm actually just excited, you know, as I was wiping flecks of vomit away from my face, you know. And I, for me, it was like a religious experience. I just, I knew that's what I wanted to do with my life after I saw it. And if you think about it, if you're in the west of Scotland, a million miles from the west of Hollywood, it seems unfathomable that you could possibly kind of do that as as a job. Like the idea of somebody working in Glasgow was very glamorous to me because it was somebody who got on a train and left our small town and went to Glasgow. So the idea of working in the states at all just seems preposterous in some ways. But I knew I had to do it. And I didn't know what the path was going to be, but I knew that's what my life was going so to be. So the entail. specifics was you knew that you would work in America. Hundred, I, I never considered working anywhere except New York and Los Angeles. I mean, that was at that age. I just I knew that's what I wanted to do, and I started sending submissions by the time I was about thirteen. What sort of submissions? Just stories, you know. Like uh, I came up with uh, an idea for a Superman story when I was about six, and it was um, the idea of Superman's rocket landing in Russia instead of America, like. 
I, I was starting to kind of maybe by about six, I knew there was twin ideologies really in the in the world. That there was capitalism and there was communism. So I was sort of getting to grips with this, you know, because my parents were quite political. My dad was a trade union guy and everything, you know, and I just knew there was these guys and then there was America. And I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to have a Superman story that was set in, you know, this this other ideology? And I couldn't obviously articulate it as a story, but by the time I was about 13, I started to piece it together and I started, you know, putting together a proper proposal, which I sent into DC Comics. And we should say that eventually this did become Red Sun, S-O-N, yeah. which is a, a fantastic story. Well, do you know what's funny? It was so long in the making. Like, I, I, I came up with it when I was six. And it published I pitched it when, when I was 13 and it got published when I was 33. You know, so it did take a long time to come, but the story stayed kind of intact, actually. Quite a lot of it was already there when I was about, maybe by the time I was about 13, I'd hammered it together into some kind of story. Seeing Superman, yeah, it was more than just wanting to work in America. You knew you wanted to do comics? Yeah. I, anything to do with this kind of thing. You know, I mean, this, is, this was the bush catching fire for, for Moses. You know, this was like a... I, I, it was almost a quasi-religious experience. Like, I knew that I wanted to do something to do with superheroes. Maybe it was, you know, putting the costumes on them on a production line and for toys or something, I didn't know. But I knew I had to do something to do with superheroes and I didn't know what that was going to take. And as I got older, I realised I could make up stories about them. It'd be cool to do films, but Hollywood's so far away. But comics is quite achievable because all you need is a pen and paper. See, it's fascinating you say that because um, we should talk a bit more about the circumstances that you're growing up. You were genuinely very poor so when Mm -hmm. you say you had this ambition and you could see yourself doing it yeah people often say someone like you couldn't have conceived of achieving it how how did you feel it was achievable I think I was lucky I was the youngest of six children and the others are quite a bit older than me you know so there's quite a big gap like what my oldest brother is 22 years older than me so it was kind of like having a lot of indulgent parents and my mum and dad were very loving and very sort of like uh, encouraging of anything I did so I would sit and draw a comic and they would put it up in the kitchen and they would show it to their friends and so on and then I, I had this sense that people like this stuff and I could make money from this I was I was always kind of interested in the, the commercial side of things you know so what I did when I was about maybe six as I started drawing my own comics lettering them and selling them to members of the family and then neighbours I would go around neighbours and sell them to, to neighbours too so and people would buy them so I, I always kind of had a sense that okay this is working for me this is this is going pretty well but I never ever countenanced the idea of it not you know like even even in my teens when I had no money at all like after my parents died and everything I always thought this will be absolutely fine so I always had this quite indestructible sort of belief that it would work out absolutely okay it's interesting that some of the most famous comic characters you've created, like in Kick-Ass and, you know, I'm thinking Old Man Logan being mm-hmm. about Wolverine, are very dark, are very violent, have actually proved quite controversial. Yeah. Um, but your own heroes are these quite uncomplicated, pure good guys with yeah. clear values, like the Christopher Reeve Superman and indeed Luke Skywalker in mm-hmm. uh, Star Wars. Explain. I think when you do a lot of um, when you do a lot of work like which comics is you know it's not like doing a movie every three years the way filmmakers tend to be comics you're bringing out I mean I'm slow and I do twenty two a year maybe twenty twenty two a year and some of my friends do sixty a year you just cover all bases you know so some of your heroes are really light and some of your heroes are really dark and some of them are 
outright bad guys but it's just to keep it interesting you know like some it'd be really boring to be doing the same thing all the time like I remember I was known as the guy who just did the children's stuff believe it or not you know like back in my 20s I did a run on Superman but it was the junior Superman books the ones that were aimed to kind of eight-year-olds or whatever and I loved doing it it was actually fantastic to do but that's what I was known for so then when I was given the next book which was a bit more adult orientated they were like can this guy do this because he does the light stuff you know so then I did the darkest stuff possible and then then after that they were like should we bring him into Marvel because he does really dark stuff you know so it's people just judge you on your last your last book I'm interested in the choice you made at some point between writing Mm -hmm. and drawing because you are a writer of comics rather than a, a drawer now it was the best advice I was ever given. You know, I was about maybe 18 and I remember going down to London um, to try and sell my stuff. Uh, I just got the bus and we'd go down to London and go around all the um, the publishers. And 2000 AD, IPC, Fleetway, at the time was a best chance of getting any work. And I had this portfolio. And when I look back, it is quite naive. My portfolio was literally my school maths jotters uh, with squared paper and I'd have drawings of Spider-Man and things across school jotters, like the stuff that would be at the back of your, your jotter when you were in school. Um, and I was trying to get work this way, you know, and, and I'd see other people come in with leather bounds portfolio cases and beautifully inked A3 pages and mine were all on school jotter paper. And I thought, one, I thought I'm pretty young to be doing this. Everybody else was like 10 years older than me who was trying. And I thought, I'm not as professional as these guys. And uh, another writer, a guy called Grant Morrison, uh, who was 10 years older, he'd been in the business a while, he gave me some great advice where he said, pick writing or drawing. You can't do both. He said, it's like being a drummer and a guitarist. Like, you can you can be pretty good at both, potentially, but you'll not be really good unless you put all your attention into one thing. And it was actually a commercial decision. Like, um, I actually thought, I can't... Right now, I had no money at all, you know, so, like, I, I thought all I can afford is paper because my sister can steal it from her work for me, you know, and I can go to the local library and I can type up my stories on the typewriter for free. Whereas if I'm an artist, I have to buy A3 boards and I have to buy a portfolio case and I need to buy ink and brushes and pens and all the things I can't actually afford. So it was it was as simple as that. And when was this? What year was this? Maybe 1988 or something, when I'm about 18, 18, 19 maybe. So 18 and a half, I think. And it was it was great, you know, like uh, because suddenly things were twice as easy. I didn't have to spread myself across this massive talent base and just focus on writing but even then I mean it still took me I'd say about 10 years to get any good you know because you you have to write a lot of rubbish before you kind of know your way around a story it's like being a metal worker or a carpenter or something you know you have to bang your thumb a lot before you kind of get any kind of level of craft but people might also think is is there not a level of frustration because in a sense it's like putting your hands through someone else yeah because it's the visuals ultimately yeah um that people think of first when they think of the comics and you're providing the story yeah but you're not actually drawing them yeah, it's true. I mean, you you do a lot of um, the visual side of it that never gets seen, which is you know you you plan out the story and work out each, how each panel looks. So, for example, you'll you'll start with an establishing shot of New York City. There's a figure in the foreground. He's got his back to you. You know, so you sit and draw it like that, and then you describe it for the artist to draw. So there's a visual element that really helps if you can draw. You know, because you want to the page to look as good as it possibly can. But you just have to work with the best possible artists. You know, I mean, uh, comics is very much a marriage, which is why writers are never described as the so creators I mean the artist brings at least as much to it probably more I think because the visual thing is so important and once I was working with guys who were so good I felt it raised my game as well you know it's a bit like if you put De Niro in a movie that Scorsese's directing it's a lot more interesting than Meet the Fockers you know it's like if you have a bunch of people who are really good working together you get the best results. When did you actually start writing comics? Originally? No originally. 
Um, when I was about five, when I was about five or six, that's the ones I was trying to sell, you know, so um, I, I would hand draw them. And what I didn't know, actually, was that there was such a thing as photocopiers or printing presses or anything. I thought it was like medieval monks and everybody just sort of drew each one individually. So I, would, I did this thing called the Miller Monthly and uh, I, I used to do this and it was all superhero stories and I would hand, hand draw the whole thing and letter it and then start over again with the exact same thing and do multiple copies. And my dad said to me, oh, there's uh, something in my work called a photocopier that could make this a lot easier for you and he printed off multiple copies you know and what I used to do was like I say sell them to neighbours and then the money I got from that I would invest in buying more comics so I had a pretty good comic collection by the time I was about six or seven. You met Alan Moore the comic artist what difference did he make to your thinking? Well, I mean, Alan Moore's the greatest comic writer of all time. You know, he uh, there was Stan Lee in the 60s and then Alan Moore came along in the 80s and both were equally redefining. And we should like, say so, um, Alan Moore created things like Watchmen. Yeah, he did Watchmen, he, he did V for Vendetta, From Hell, a lot of things that have been turned into terrible movies but actually are based on the greatest comics ever, which I think is why he's quite disenchanted with Hollywood because there was nobody like him. You know, he, he did the best work uh, and the filmmakers weren't quite as talented as he was. And I met him when I I was 13 it was just the beginning of his kind of career and that was really exciting to me because you know like I say I lived a very long way away from Marvel and DC but this was somebody on this same island that we're on who was working transatlantically and I'd never encountered that before and actually to meet somebody in the flesh sitting right in front of you who was doing the job that you dreamed of doing it was very inspirational you know the idea that there was a possibility that I could do it too and it's only in hindsight I realised about a month after that I started sending my submissions into DC once I realised there was a British guy already there. You talked about this this kind of spiritual moment and moments of revelation which kind of hints at a sort of I mean, religious experience. Um, You are a a practising Roman Catholic. I'm interested in um, the role of faith in your career and also particularly your love of Spider-Man because mm-hmm. you had a quite an unusual first Holy Communion. That's right. <laughs> My Holy Communion uh, was almost ruined by about a week before I got what you would now call a Sharpie, I guess. a big. We used to call it an inky, like a big thick black pen. And I drew Spider-Man's face across my own, you know, like, uh, I mean, I must have looked like a psychopath, but I was actually just out playing and I didn't have a Spider-Man costume when I was playing with my pals, so I just drew the webs on and drew the eyes. And then I came in that night and mum was like, what the hell have you done, you know? And I was like, uh, just been playing Spider-Man, we can wash this off. And she was like, that's indelible ink, this is never coming off. And a week later, my Holy Communion was a week later, you could still see Spider-Man's face across my face. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of what is Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. 
The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The early 80s in Britain was a kind of quite an angry time politically. You know, mm. Margaret Thatcher had come to power. There's a lot of stuff going on with, with industrial towns like Coatbridge, um, yeah. losing factories and jobs. And this is the age at which you're going into secondary school um, and you, you start doing school debating, which seems to have been quite a major influence. And you're also, you were writing letters to politicians. Yeah. Tell me what was going on <laughs> in your life and how political you were. Well, it's funny... Uh, my childhood was a very political one and it's only in hindsight I, I realised not everyone's was. You know, like I wrote a condolence letter to Jim Callaghan when he lost the 1979 general election. So this was so a Labour Prime nine, Minister who yeah. lost an election. And nobody knew at that point how bad the Thatcher years were going to be, but there was just an air of sadness in the house and I remember thinking, that's really sad, Jim Callaghan seems really nice. And I remember writing him a letter, you know, saying, I'm really sorry you lost your job and everything and my mum posted it for me and everything when I was nine. So again, it's the precociousness, I guess, you know. And, and the politicisation, you know, we were always debating in the house. I mean, it's five brothers and one sister and we were always always arguing and shouting but in a fun way you know like everybody was just always debating with each other so then going to school the fact that there was a debating club at school was kind of exciting and I was very encouraged by an English teacher who I've never seen again I've always thought I'd love to bump into him at some point but he moved away he moved up north what uh, was, was he a guy called, called Derek Corr and he was a fantastic English teacher, one of those real inspirational teachers that just comes along once in a lifetime. And I'd never um, really thought of myself as being especially good at English um, at that point. Um, but in first year, he sort of spotted something and would always be very encouraging of writing, but particularly public speaking. He said, I think you'd be pretty good at this. So and, what sort uh, of topics were you taking on? The first one I did was about school dinners. That was the topic that had been given to us, like, should they be banned or something, you know? Or should they carry a public health warning? That's what it was. Uh, somebody had come up with this. And I remember actually writing this speech that went down really well. And it was the first experience I'd had of public speaking. But I wasn't nervous because I'd been standing in front of 300 people every Sunday as an altar boy holding a candle or doing a reading or something. Yeah. Like that. So it was actually fine, you know, to be in front of 50 people in a classroom was no big deal, really, you know. And I remember just this speech went down really well. And I remember thinking, this is amazing, you know. So it was, I realised the power of words, you know, like at the end of every sentence, you were getting a laugh. And I thought, this is pretty cool. And I was a first year and there was six years laughing. And I thought, this is amazing. So I was pretty pumped up. And I remember the following week, 
sort of pushing myself forward again to be in the next one. And the next one was about should Britain remain in the EEC, you know? And uh, the, and I didn't realise... The European Union as it was to become. As it was then, yeah. And, and, and I hadn't actually realised that what everybody liked was the gags, you know? So I wrote this really serious speech about the EEC and everything. And I remember the room had about 100 people in it because people had said, oh, this kid was pretty good last week. You should come out and see him. So word had got around. And I remember just the room dying, you know, because it's me just talking about industrial policy and things like this, you know? So I realised it was a very important early lesson, which was know your audience, you know, and play to the gallery as often as you can. <laughs> there are life-changing moments um, that happen to you, and one of them was being forced to drop out of university. You know, technically the reason is I'd run out of money because I was living on my own by this point. So my parents had both died. Um, my mum had died when I was 14, then dad when I was uh, 18. Of illness? Uh, just uh, the heart disease, you know. So, like, uh, dad was um, 65 and mum was 64, which I realise now is young. But at the time, they seemed quite old to me, you know, because they'd been quite old parents when I was born. Um, and weirdly, I mean, I know this sounds odd. A lot of the listeners will be English and middle class, you know. But like, if you're if you're from Scotland, especially in the eighties, you know, when everybody smoked and all this kind of thing, that was not that unusual. You know, like quite a lot of people in my neighbourhood died at that age. And when you walk around the cemetery, you see a lot of people dead in their fifties and sixties and so on. Um, but it was just lifestyle, you know, lifestyle and, and also genetics. You know, like uh, the, the west of Scotland, there does tend to be shorter lifespans. I, I just found myself suddenly w- with no money whatsoever, and I remember there was me and a cat uh, that I'd somehow inherited um, living in a small flat in the middle of nowhere. I couldn't afford to stay in the town itself so I was out on the edges of the town living in the countryside in this weird flat that used to be a farmhouse and I would have my dinner one night and the cat would have uh, food the next night, you know. So that sort of desperation was actually an amazing motivator, you know, that I would really? just... that. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I just thought I, I have to make some kind of success of this and that's when I really started earnestly trying to be a writer. So what I did was... Um, I, I wrote a story a day. I, I wrote a short science fiction story a day and sent it into 2000 AD, the British comic. And over the course of months, literally dozens of stories were coming in. And I, I couldn't afford to send them daily. So at the end of the week, I would take what small money I had and buy a stamp and an envelope and put the five stories I'd written that weekend and send them off. And actually very quickly, um, I got work. So by the time I was 19, I was working pretty solidly. Um, and all through my 20s, I never had a hit, but I was working steadily all through my 20s. And then you did have your first child, what now seems relatively young, 28. And that did affect you as well, didn't it? It did. I think that's what actually got me off my backside and really go for it. You know, like, I think when you're just making enough money to pay your bills and, like, go out for nights out, which I did all the time. I I literally went out every single night for my entire 20s. You know, like, uh, there wasn't a night I stayed in. I think working from home especially, being a writer, I just thought it was really important to balance my life by drinking every night, you know, just going out and having a good time. And uh, and it was great. I mean, I, I had a brilliant time, but there was just something about hitting 28 and suddenly having a baby and this tiny little person that weighed six pounds, you know, who needed you to get milk for them. You know what I mean? This was a big deal. So I, I, I completely sort of changed. And, and I think by, by 30, I had my first hit. And I think Emily being born actually was the, the motivator. You know, I, I don't know, I probably continued as was otherwise, but I just suddenly realised that it's now or never, I have to do something. You know, it's really interesting because you always talk about some of these things as being the great motivator. Yeah. If you flip them around, some people would talk about 
the terror that could come, the fear <laughs> of failure, the fear of yeah. not having money. You don't seem to have a fear of failure. I've never, I've never been afraid in any situation, and I think it's actually a weakness. I think this is actually a weakness because I know, I know this is how I'm going to get killed or something. I mean, my wife and I were in Italy a few years back, and uh, there was there was a fight in the street, and there was like ten guys fighting each other, and I says to Lucy, "I've got to go and sort this out," you know, and like, you know, so like I, I weirdly never get scared of anything, you know, and she she had to sort of hold me back in the police eventually. So it it down, but for some reason I always think everything will be okay and I can take care of the situation. <laughs> you know, so like, and it's the same when things were at their absolute worst. I used to always kind of think, well, yeah, it'll be absolutely fine. It'll, of course, it'll work out. Why would it not? Well, you're now a father of three, and your yeah. two younger daughters are, are, are still very young. Has it affected, or rather, how has it affected the characters you create? Because it has changed who you think we need to see in comics, hasn't it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, a lot of it's subconscious, though, as well, you know, because, I mean, I think the mistake you can make is when you sit down with a pen and actually think, OK, I think we, we need to be doing more female characters, you know, that kind of thing. I think it has, it has to be more subtle. I mean, I think our house is, you know, it's an incredibly female house. Like, my wife's a woman. The the, the three kids are, 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 are female, you know, and like, uh, so the house, I, I pick up by osmosis lots of female things, you know, and you're unaware of it, you know, so you find that creeping into your work. But there actually was a, a, a slight uh, incident as well, which was one of my friends who's an actress out in Los Angeles. She and I were having lunch. Um, she's called, her, her stage name is Veronica Veronica Taylor. And she's got the coolest job. She's the voice of the boy Ash in Pokemon, you know. And uh, she was saying to me, she said, oh, there's just no good parts. You know, when you're in your 40s and you're a woman, there's just nothing, you know. And uh, I was saying, yeah, that's terrible. There should be more, you know. And she said, well, bloody write some you know and, and I hadn't actually thought about it but the responsibility lies entirely with the writer it's not the studios it's not it's not the directors it's the writers and the director is a blank piece of paper it's and a great cr- piece you've thing. created characters like Empress who yeah. is who's a mother she's kind yeah. of middle aged but she's also an incredibly glamorous yeah. kind of yeah. alien warrior queen so that sort of heroic uh, figure that you always get in comic books which is the 30 year old blonde white male you know it's kind of been done it works. It's been great. You know, some of my favourite characters are white males around 30, you know. But I just think from a creative point of view, it's really interesting to mix that up a little bit because the stories are different. If you write a story about a woman who's 40 and she has three children and she's in a sci-fi bad situation and there's somebody coming to kill them, it's a very different story because you're suddenly thinking about the kids and, you know, her relationship with uh, with the bad guy is who's her ex-husband and everything. That story just wrote itself. It's like Kramer versus Kramer in space. Not <laughs> <Another> the pitch. <laughs> and, and so what are the superheroes that aren't written that we need? And I'm thinking of, you know, things like Ms. Marvel, the Arab-American Muslim yeah. um, heroine who's become, you know, quite a big success, hasn't she? I don't know if people have noticed this, but nearly all the Marvel characters are based, like I say, they're, they're white males based around the East Coast of America, specifically New York. And I mean, that's that's incredible when you think there's seven billion people in the planet and all these stories are based around a few miles of the Marvel office, you know. So it does seem a bit odd, you know, that if you're in France or you're in Belgium or, or you're in New Guinea or something, you know, why is there no stories set in these places? And I think a few years ago Marvel figured this out and it's something I figured out too, which was make it more global. And from a commercial point of view, it's very smart as well because your audience is no longer just America. Cinema figured this out 20 years ago, you know, and, and started to mix up the ethnicity of the people who were on their posters. A movie like Fast and the Future which doesn't really have any massive stars in it but it looks global it looks like you could put that poster up in any mm. city in the world and there's somebody who looks a little bit like you on that poster so that feels quite nice I think for an audience to actually have some sort of relatable character in there the way Peter Parker's relatable if you're a, a kid like that in the East Coast 
Can we talk about your politics? You are a powerful Hollywood player now, but you are still a committed socialist. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're pro-Brexit. You're an admirer of the British Labour Party leader, Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah. Is that connected in any way to your childhood heroes? Um, yeah, Tony Benn was was a hero. I mean, I used to write to Tony Benn as you well. You say a prominent Labour oh, uh, yes. minister of the 1970s. Tony Benn was kind of the, the, the father of Jeremy Corbyn, really, you know, and, and he just made that step that Benn never made in the early 80s. Um, so when Jeremy Corbyn was elected, there was a lot of enthusiasm for Tony Benn in my house. You know, so one generation on, it's very exciting to see somebody like Corbyn in there. And it's funny because as a Eurosceptic, one thing that drives me nuts is people online saying, oh, you're a UKIPper and you're a fan of Nigel Farage and everything. And it's, it, it's such a lack of intelligence on the part of the people you're talking about because you know Euroscepticism was the preserve of the left pre-1988 as soon as Jacques Delors came over and criticised Thatcher it brought a lot of Labour people on side but you know it's, it's kind of nice to actually feel that there's a politician now and a party now that I can get behind because as a left-leaning guy I didn't really have a party for a long time you know like I was excited like everybody else when Tony Blair was elected in 1997 as Prime Minister here after the Iraq war, everybody became a little bit disenchanted and for about a decade I felt I was without a party. And I'd vote Labour, but quite unenthusiastically. I drifted to the SNP for a little while, but I realised that was kind of going nowhere. You know, they, they didn't really have anything brilliantly well thought out or anything, you know. And, and I, so, so Corbyn emerging was really exciting and it really energised everybody. I mean, now the Labour Party is the biggest mass membership party in Europe, which is hugely exciting. We're on the cusp, potentially, of another Labour government. You have time for quite controversial figures. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the Scottish politician George Galloway, you know, you went on his show on RT yeah. Russia Today. The conspiracy theorist David Icke. Yeah. Some people might be surprised. Why do you have time for them? I just love interesting people. You know, like, uh, when I when I was growing up, one of the things that attracted me with Tony Benn is that all the newspapers were against him. Like, everybody seemed to be against him, and that made me think, there must be something alright about this guy. You know, it's like, all the bad guys seem to have it in for him. And that's what I feel with George and what I feel with David. You know, they're, they're, they're just really interesting guys. They're great company. There's nothing more fun than a lunch with George Galloway, you know, or uh, you know, David Icke's a fascinating guy. You can sit and listen to him all night and, you know, everyone uh, may not agree with everything that he's saying, you know, but he's interesting nonetheless. Like my, my worst lunch would be like Nick Clegg or, you know, like a liberal Democrat. You know, the idea of spending all an hour listening to somebody, you know, who's a moderate is kind of boring. So I've got friends right across the political spectrum. You know, I, 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 for my, my only condition is you're interesting. <laughs> Out of all the characters that you created, who is your alter ego? I think it's a combination of Big Daddy and Kickass, because Kickass is me when I'm 14. And Big Daddy is me as an adult. Remind us of oh, sorry, Big Daddy, yeah, uh, one of your new characters. Um, well, Kick-Ass um, was a, a book that I brought out in 2008, a movie in 2010, and it was very autobiographical. It was about a guy who decided that he was going to try and be a superhero, even though he had no powers, he had no money. He was just a kid who liked superhero comics, and he was actually going to dress up as one and go out and try and fight crime. And there's another character in the book who's older and doing exactly the same thing. And he's got a kid who he's trained up to be his young sidekick. And I realised I had no real plan to do it this way, but I realised it was very autobiographical. A lot of the lines that I was writing and so on, it was things uh, that I'd said myself. Um, and Big Daddy was based on me as an adult and Kick-Ass was based on me as a 14-year-old. Uh, and I think that's why it resonated so much with people because it really did come from the heart. You know, it was a very personal thing. It wasn't... You know, the way most comic books are just explosions and superpowers and everything, this was about somebody who you could maybe relate to in some level. Can you read us a bit from, is this Kick-Ass? Is this one of the first Sure, yeah. Issues? I mean, this is this is the opening page to Kick-Ass. And comics is kind of funny to read because usually it's just dialogue, you know. So I tried to pick a page that it wasn't just me doing funny voices and American accents and things, you know. So this is an internal monologue of Kick-Ass himself, you know, Dave Luzuski, the lead character. And it's what I always thought as a kid, you know, because I, I wanted to be a superhero when I was a kid. And when I was a young teenager, my friend 
friends and I said, let's actually do this. Let's dress up as superheroes and go out and try and do this. And we never did it. But Kick-Ass is a sort of alternate reality autobiography of what might have happened if, uh, if I did. So this opening page here, you know, is, uh, is his, his monologue where he says, I always wondered why nobody did it before me. All those comic book movies and television shows, you'd think at least one eccentric loner would have stitched himself a costume. Is everyday life really so exciting? Are schools and offices really so thrilling that I'm the only one who ever fantasised about this? Come on, be honest with yourself. We all plan to be a superhero at some point in our lives. Was there more to read? No, that's no, it. That was it. Yeah, it's I... just a fight after that. <laughs> <laughs> just a fight after that. What's really interesting is as a result of the multi-million pound deal you've um, done selling um, Millerwell to Netflix... Yeah. You've decided to invest big time in your hometown. Remind us first what you're doing briefly. I had this notion of doing something for the small community that I grew up in. There's 6,000 people in the the housing estate that I grew up in. Um, A thousand houses, two churches, two schools, six shops. And, you know, it's small enough that if you invested quite a large chunk of money, you could do something really interesting in it. Um, And I, I, I literally drew a circle around it. And I'm talking the next street nothing's happening in you know this is all focused on this one area that I grew up in called Townhead in Coatbridge and um, and I loved it you know and it's, it's a place that I've got a lot of friends still I've got a lot of family still quite a lot of my family are there like cousins my brother's there you I know, should say it's still there. you know it's still a profoundly poor neighbourhood yeah it is I mean it's in, in terms of on the social economic mm-hmm. scales it, it scores low you know um, but there's an awful lot of good people there you know and there's a lot of people like I say I have, I've still got connections with and I thought wouldn't it be good to try and I, I hate to use the word redevelop because it always sounds awful but the idea of just doing some cool stuff there for five years and actually really devote five years to it and get a team of people like old friends from school um, some new friends you know and volunteers and actually just try and do something awesome roughly every six or eight weeks such as so we put on a comic you know, like San Diego Comic Con is, uh, like I said, when I was a kid, something like that seemed very far away. So the idea of bringing it to the housing estate was really exciting. And I specifically brought it to my old primary school. And again, I feel there's a tremendous indebtedness to my old school because it's where I learned how to read and write. You know, all the encouragement that I got, uh, you know, that wasn't from my parents was from school. You know, and, and I, I liked uh, my time at the school. I, I, I had a lovely experience there. And I thought, well, you know what, this is what I do for a living. I kind of owe these guys I should do something for What them. other sorts of things are you going to do? The comic convention we're going to do every year, I think, because we had such a great time with it. You know, like I, I bought a 100-foot inflatable Spider-Man <laughs> for the schoolyard, you know, and uh, so we want to use that again next year, you know. So like, we got the cars from Back to the Future, the car from Harry Potter, with the actors from Outlander. We flew in guys from Marvel and DC in 2018 and everything. And we had a convention inside a place with a capacity of only 300 people. So we pitched up a big tent in the school, uh, the school football pitch and everything, and it just became a little mini San Diego. So we're going to do that. That every year because we had such a great time we're doing a Christmas experience on November 24th so what that is is uh, every year there's going to be in the last week of November we're going to have a Santa day in the, the neighbourhoods there's already a Christmas fair at the local church but we thought we'd steroid inject it and get reindeer pulling Santa through the housing estate you know to this place that's going to be done up like a massive grotto and free presents for all the children you know so so things like that there's an Abba night for pensioners uh, that we've got going it's, it's kind of weird that pensioners are now Abba age you know it's like yeah. uh, but but there's a, an Abba night for pensioners in December with a free Christmas lunch for all the pensioners who want to come along and, you know. Because, you know, what one could say hearing you describe all this is there's something sort of genuinely um, philanthropic about it. But it could also seem a bit Lex Lutherish. You know, <laughs> comics are full of megalomaniacs taking over a town to fix it. <laughs> Rebuild it as a big statue of me in the middle of the town. Yeah. <laughs> At what point does it turn evil? Lutherville, you know. <laughs> yeah. But do you have a, an idea that comics can save the world? 
Well, I just think I, I'm obsessed with the idea of in a very binary world that we're in right now. You know, I, I'm obsessed with the idea that localism is the way forward, right? And and I don't know if anybody else is talking about this, but it's something I've, I've come up with, which is that really, if you put most people in a room, they agree on almost every issue. And you would never think this from from the internet or whatever, you know, but or from political debate. But generally, all people want is a job, their kids to be okay, you know, and and to have a house with a roof over their head, you know. People generally have got the same sort of moral codes, mostly. When you get them together it's fringe issues they maybe disagree on but people generally are fine and I, I just think I thought about going into politics in some sense but I sort of see the trap you know I mean all it is really is like putting you in one camp and having you against other people you'd probably get on pretty well with so all, I, my philosophy is just look after one patch if you can it might even just be your own house it might be your street it might be your old neighbourhoods and try and make things a little lighter that's all you can do as a human being you know and that's kind of my plan for these five years to try and make where I grew up better than it was when I was a kid Against the odds Mark you seem to have absolutely pursued your dream and achieved it in some ways that makes you very exceptional but I wonder if there are insights you can offer that people who might not have that innate confidence could learn from in terms of getting out there and doing what they want I think being poor is a good start, actually. I think, you know, because I, I, I look at my friends and it's really interesting. Like, I mean, especially the guys I've, I've met in Hollywood and so on, is that the risk for them was more because they maybe had quite a nice potential life ahead of them if they didn't take any kind of risks, whereas I had nothing to lose. Like, I, I literally was eating every other night when I was 19 for a while. And, like, uh, so the only way is up, really, you know. So so that was actually quite nice, that there was never an idea that failure meant things getting worse. <laughs> you know, like, failure was just something that was a possibility and then you would just try again. So, so I think it was just an animal instinct to keep going. Um, the other thing, though, I think, is to not assume that everyone else is a genius. Like, you only have to turn on television to see that almost everything is rubbish, you know? So even if you do something that's mediocre, it's at least better than the rubbish that's there, you know? So as to put it in perspective, like, don't measure yourself against James Joyce. You know, measure yourself against these tenters, you know? It's like, because that's re in reality what you're up against, you know? So it shouldn't be too daunting that everybody is just human beings. And, and even Steven Spielberg, you know, his third movie was terrible, you know? It's like, people do have flaws and they make mistakes, but you just got to keep trying. So I always saw failure as an inevitable consequence, but you've just got to pick yourself up from it. Mark Miller, thank you for sharing with us how you found your voice. This podcast was made by Intelligence Squared. The producer was Farah Jasset. Mm -hmm.